Welcome back to Salty Talks. I'm Corinne Newfie, the Communications Specialist at the Aquaculture Research Institute. And today I've got one of our researchers here whose experience in aquaculture spans both decades and continents to talk about something likely unfamiliar to a lot of you, and that would be blister worms. Well, my name is Paul Rawson, and I have been working in aquaculture in one way or another since the 1980s when I served as a fisheries officer in Nepal in the Peace Corps. From there, I went on to uh, take a degree at the University of South Carolina where I worked on hard clam genetics. Uh, I learned a little bit about molecular biology at Scripps Institution of Oceanography before then coming to the University of Maine in 1998, and I have been here ever since. I was initially hired as a geneticist, a shellfish geneticist, um, to help continue the breeding program in eastern oysters that was established at the University of Maine in the 1980s. And that role has expanded to become part of, I am now a member of the Eastern Oyster Breeding Consortium, which is a group of multiple institutions spanning North Carolina to Maine. And we, our role is to help provide, in that group, our role is to provide um, support to the regional breeding of Eastern oysters that also benefits growers in Maine. While working on shellfish research, it was a simple yet pressing question from a local grower about blister worms that redirected part of Dr. Rawson's trajectory. Still in the realm of shellfish, but now with a focus on polydora, or blister worms. How did I get involved in blister worm research? Then one might ask if I have so much to do with shellfish genetics. As part of our effort to continue monitoring the, the value of the what we call the Humane Flower Select Oyster Line. Um, we would do field trials at various places in the state of Maine, various rivers, comparing the growth and survival of our line to other selectively bred lines. And a lot of the times when we would visit a, a particular farm just east of the Penobscot River, the grower there had a problem with something we call blister worm. And he would often tell me that it's really nice all these things you're doing on the genetics, but when are we going to do something about that worm? This response to the practical challenges faced by local oyster farmers raises the larger question, are blister worms a recent concern in marine ecosystems or have they been a hidden adversary for much longer? Blister worm well, I mean, historically, blister worms were first described by natural historians in the 1700s. And have, there are reports that ascribe severe damage to oyster reefs in Australia from the late 1800s. And culture industry in particular, um, well, worldwide, but even in the United States, you know, for decades now has known of the damage that these marine polychaetes can create in cultured shellfish, as well as in natural populations. So we are aware of them, but the, the interest in solving the problem stems back to my discussions with that grower. It sounds like blister worms' ability to infiltrate various marine organisms indicates a wider spread impact on ecosystems. So just how pervasive is the problem of blister worms, and what exactly is their impact? The term blister worm covers a broad variety of uh, polychaetes 
marine polychaetes in the family Spionidae, but it can be applied and has been applied to nearly 150 different species of worm that will burrow into and dissolve part of the shell of a host bivalve. And they're also known from abalone and, and other uh, calcium carbonate constructing host species. Um, so it's a very broad group of which a couple of particular species, one that we have in the United States and, and, and is common throughout the world, Polydora websteri, um, closely related to others such as Polydora hoplura, uh, Polydora neoseca, and others, they're well known for coming into the shell of a host and entering via two ways either between the two valves and then building a mud tube along one of the valves that the host shellfish then covers over. And then the worm burrows a little deeper into that new shell material and the host covers it over in kind of a tug of war. And the worm, as they build a mud tube within that burrow that they've created in the shell, fills it with mud and other materials, including fecal matter, which makes it a dark, ugly mass, which we call the blister. So it really detracts. If you were to open up a oyster, say, serve it on the half shell, and there's one of these blisters sitting along the inner surface, it kind of detracts from the, the look and the potential value of, of that oyster on the market. Now they don't just come in between the valves. Worms can also get, start to use chemical secretions to create a hole in the, two, in the shell of the host and put their burrow all the way into the inner surface from the outside of the shell. So two ways to get in there and under really uh, heavy infestations, you can have dozens to hundreds of worms per oyster in a large oyster. And they're not restricted to oysters. We find them in scallops. We find them in mussels of various, various species of mussels. They are seen in clams. And as I said earlier, they, they also, some of these species are found in abalone. Now, they also occur in naturally, you know, not in aquaculture settings, but in natural populations of calcium carbonate bearing species. So in addition to uh, wild populations of, of clams and mussels uh, and oyster reefs, we've been finding them in calcareous red algae. Um, they're not always the same species in each of those groups and each of those uh, potential hosts. But it means that it's not just the shellfish farms that are the source of blister worms but rather there's likely to be a, a natural reservoir all along the coast that is just probably taking advantage of cultured shellfish and all the extra calcium carbonate that's now been made available to them. Paul's insights here paint a vivid picture of the blister worm's impact on marine life and had me wondering about the nature of this relationship between the worm and the oyster. Is it purely parasitic or is there some level of mutual benefit? To what extent is this relationship harmful or beneficial? How it originated evolutionarily, I could not tell you, but certainly this is a habit that evolved because it does provide a certain amount of protection to the worm. In 
very low levels of, of infestation of the worms on, on say, oyster hosts or, or other shellfish hosts. It's considered to be a commensal species, that is, that it doesn't harm the host but gains a benefit itself from being associated with that host. And some of the things that it benefits are the burrow keeps it, that this embedded in the shell, keeps it from being exposed to predators. We find that it limits the changes in, say, salinity that occur within the burrow, so that when one tries to, say, treat oysters with an infestation with brine or freshwater solutions, the burrow doesn't change characteristics fast enough to kill the worm. So it's a protection against farmers trying to get rid of it. It's probably also a protection uh, against things that it would see ecologically in the habitat to begin with. And just to give you a visual of what these things look like, Paul sent me some readings with photos that reveal these squiggly, orangish, segmented worms. And these worms, while seemingly small, can actually grow significantly, causing these black-looking blister spots that dominate the shell's landscape. They are not small by any means. Some of the largest specimens that we have seen will be upwards of 60 to 80 millimeters in length and perhaps as a true annelid they're a segmented worm so they have you know dozens of, of segments in adult worms they come in and they burrow as u-shaped so the head is out one end and then the burrow will come and loop through the shell and the uh, posterior region will be out the other opening and a given blister could cover probably, you know, a good, not just the, the, the length of the worm, but when you then include all the other tube materials and detritus that they pack in there, it can cover quite a bit of territory on the oyster, several millimeters, uh, maybe up to a centimeter squared or so on the inside surface. But they also, in the shell, will be packed like one on top of another in really bad infestation, so that there's, the shell is almost more worm than it is calcium carbonate at that point. And so even in conditions where you might be not be trying to serve an oyster or a shellfish on the half shell and you have that unsightly blister on the inside, the shell starts to lose integrity and it could be very hard to shuck or to open the shellfish um, without it, the shell just falling apart. Where what is described as initially a commensal relationship turns to something more damaging to the host and they're and then considered parasitic is either when you get really, particularly when you get really heavy loads, infestations of worm per host individual. Um, people have tried to quantify what those costs would be that would take it from a, being a commensalism to being a parasitism. Some of those costs would include if they are burrowing in and there are so many burrows in the shell, you start to see that they come in under the adductor muscle, which is what, say, an oyster or a scallop or a mussel uses to help keep their shell closed. If they can cause that adductor muscle to separate from the shell, then the host can no longer keep its shell closed and it itself is open to predation and, and other problems. There are some reports, really interesting reports, that some of the blister worms will 
be positioned in such a way near the margin of the shell that they can actually extend their anterior appendages called feeding palps, which they use to um, either filter feed by pulling material out of the water column, or they can switch and start to feed on deposited material, which is on the surface of the host shell. But some have even been seen by a, a colleague uh, at the University of Connecticut, Evan Ward, who does this really elegant endoscopy where he puts a fiber optic probe in, inside of the cavity of a shellfish and watches it feed. And he's seen instances where some of these blister worms will reach into the food groove and steal food. It's kind of a, it's a phenomenon known as kleptoparasitism. I mean, whether, whether that causes a decline in the food available to the oyster to such a level that it affects its health is, is not known. A um, number of studies have tried to investigate whether the more worms you have, does the oyster or the other, other shellfish host, do they have to put down so much new shell material to protect themselves that they then aren't putting energy into building their tissues? And those, a lot of that research is a little bit, some, sometimes we find an effect and sometimes there isn't much of an effect. And I think a lot of it has to do with the species involved and the degree of the severity of the infestation. So in all likely, I mean, shellfish are always putting down new shell material as they grow and putting down new nacre on the inside. So it's not, it's not as if the, the host never has to put down shell. It's whether they have to put down more shell when they're infected by a, a blister worm would be the question. And, and there probably is an effect, but the, the literature is a little bit unclear on how strong that effect is. So a variety of different ways in which they go from being commensal species to being more of a parasite. Moving forward, we step out of the microcosm of the oyster shell and into the human realm, where Dr. Rawson clarifies the distinction between the direct effects of blister worms on oysters and their indirect impacts on humans. Let's start with the blister worms are not dangerous to humans. They are not, a, a, as opposed to other parasites that affect shellfish, that get into the tissues, create toxins, and cause damage to their host. The damage they're creating in the host here is, is kind of superficial in a way to the host, unless it starts to have some of the effects that we've talked about already. But when you open up an oyster and serve it on the half shell, and there's this blister in there that if it gets nicked or damaged, starts to release muds and decaying, fecal matter of the worm and stuff like that, it will make an off flavor that would not be all that palatable. If the blisters are rather firm, in other words, they've been covered over by a bit of an acre and they're not going to break, then it's a bit unsightly. And I would imagine customers might ask, you know, someone serving them uh, such, a, such an oyster. You know, what is this dark spot on my oyster? Why isn't it pearly white on the inside? But if they're not exposed to the material, the flavor of the oyster isn't going to change much. But in terms of economic, has that phenomenon ever caused economic loss? There are some reports from growers on the East Coast that they did abandon crops of oysters because they had such heavy loads of blister worm. 
many will farmers if they see that they have blister worm they're concerned and in, in a survey of growers that Dana Morse and I conducted a number of years ago one of the comments we got back was I have never had economic loss but I'd be fool not to pay attention to this because it in a competitive market it would affect my ability to sell oysters and make a living so there is concern but there's not a tremendous amount of economic loss that has been reported from it as yet I mean I, I will have sat down in restaurants in, you know in Maine and, and other northeastern states and, and had oysters and yes I'm on the lookout I'm looking to see if there's blisters showing up uh, and they're those that they're serving on the half shell um, and yes I find it quite a few places it's not just Maine that's affected by these it, it is truly a worldwide phenomenon with blister worms challenging oyster farms by damaging the shell's integrity and leading to unsightly appearances and potential altered tastes, there must be some way to combat this. While historical remedies have varied, contemporary methods focus on cold storage to eliminate the worms without harming the oysters, particularly effective in cold climates. Drying techniques are also being looked at, targeting the worm's life cycle, illustrating the evolving strategies and in integrated pest management within aquaculture. You know, as we talked about a little bit earlier, there has been, there have been reports of the impacts of blister worms since the late 1800s. And probably a, f a whole bunch of research starting from the 1930s, 1940s that you can find in the literature that have tried a variety of approaches to control the blister worm. That includes putting them in brine solution for a period of time, from minutes to maybe longer. Putting them in freshwater baths for you know hours. Drawing them, combinations of all. They've even tried some chemical treatments to get rid of the worms, and, and maybe those chemical treatments do affect uh, the survival of the worm, but they, many of those that have been tried probably would also, in today's world with regulations the way they are, render the, the, the shellfish unsaleable. Um, by and large, the burl provides a fair bit of protection. So the most effective method that I'm aware of when particularly oysters are infested with adult blister worms is that you pull them out of the water and you put them into cold storage for a period of three to four weeks. The oyster closes up, seals itself, and will survive that three to four week period. I mean, they do that here in Maine, even in the water. When the waters get cold, they just close up, they stop feeding, they're not as act metabolically active. But by taking them out of the water and putting them into cold storage with a little bit of air moving over the shell, the worm cannot close the burrow off. The burrow dries out and the worm dies. With very, in Maine waters, we can do that with very little loss to the oysters because they're in the winter time, if we do it in the winter time, the oysters are already at a very low level of metabolic activity. Taking them out of the water and keeping them cold doesn't impact the oyster that much but will help get rid of the blister worm. But that's a real 
that having the cold storage, the labor to take them, uh, the oysters out of the river or wherever you're keeping them for the winter, putting them in the cold storage, having access to cold storage, all of those are logistical issues that are not all that easy to solve. But it's the best way we've seen so far for controlling large adult blister worm. If you try that in a warmer region where the oysters are not seasonally going into a period of low metabolic activity, you're probably going to lose, in fact, we're pretty, we're aware of instances where you lose some of the oyster crop, 30, 40% or more, because during that period where they're out of the water, they're still using up reserves, and eventually that's going to lead to higher mortality of the host. So we've actually been more interested in alternatives, which is we know there's a period of time in, in the blister worm life cycle where they disperse from the maternal burrow, the mother's burrow, where the egg cases are laid. Um, and they usually leave that burrow and then we'll find another host. And if you can pinpoint when the larvae that are produced by these eggs begin to disperse from mom's burrow to a new host, and you can take the oysters out of the water for a very short period of time till the surface of the oyster shell dries, you're more likely to kill the, the larvae before they settle, metamorphose to become a juvenile, and start to create a burrow into the shell of the host. Periodic drying, periodic drying instead of long-term out of the water is a, to my way of thinking at least, is a little easier to manage within the way in which most farmers already try to control other types of fouling on an oyster farm. New research is focusing on disrupting the life cycle of blister worms at the larval stage through timed drying techniques, while ongoing studies aim to better understand the reproductive cycles of blister worms to develop more universally applicable solutions. I mean, we've conduct conducted studies on the Bagadus River where we would do periodic drying of oysters throughout the whole season and then track the arrival of new burrows ostensibly because larvae had dispersed, found a host, and were beginning to create a burrow. And could see that in oysters that we did not periodically dry our controls, that the arrival and establishment of new blister worm burrows was much higher than it was in those that we were, say, drying once a week or twice a week for four to five hours giving us a little bit of evidence that there is, and, and by tracking this throughout the summer, say uh, spring into summer and then into fall, we can sort of see in the control oysters when burrows start to show up. So that gives us a little bit of an idea when the adults are reproductive and releasing larvae. We are also involved in some research right now working with uh, another oyster farmer where we are taking oysters that are not being dried at all, large adult oysters, and we're grabbing a sample every couple of weeks, certainly at least once a month, opening those oysters up, digging into the shells, identifying as many worms as we can and looking at their reproductive state. It's very laborious and very time consuming though. And it gives us a data point on one or two places 
on one species of blister worm. Um, and so to see if these patterns are more universal is going to take a lot more effort. The studies Paul was describing on the Bagadoose River made me think of my own work dealing with integrated pest management back in my restoration days. This had me wondering if there's some type of regulatory framework for dealing with these worms. There currently is no regulatory framework for controlling blister worms. So for instance, in the state of Maine, there was an outbreak of a different disease called MSX disease on the Damascata a number of years ago. And it is now, and MSX is a disease that principally affects oysters. And there are now regulations against moving shellfish from the Damascata to other rivers in the state, other estuaries in the state for the, for, to try and control the movement of MSX disease. No such framework occurs with blister worms. Perhaps that's because there hasn't been much in the way of economic loss on farms from blister worms, whereas complete mortality of a crop due to MSX, then everyone wants to know who was the culprit for spreading the disease. But we do know that there have been instances where farmers, they won't buy them off the Damascata River because they, they're not allowed to move seed oysters from the Damascata to other locations, seed oysters being those probably an inch or more in size, probably already have one season of growth on them and are being bought and moved to another estuary where they're grown. We do know of instances where Oysters that size that harbored some blister worm were moved from one river to another and the farm that bought them ended up with an infestation of blister worm. So we have, often, we have run a number of workshops to try and teach farmers a little bit more about what blister worm is and what we know about it and to remind them to be very careful about seed transfers and certainly to move seed. I, believe by state regulation you have to have them tested for other diseases, but also to be aware that it's not just the, the well-known culprits of things like MSX that I mentioned and a disease called dermo and stuff like that, but it's also pay attention to whether there's blister worm there because once you bring it to your farm, there's a pretty good chance that it will be self, a self-seeding infestation. You've got a lot of calcium carbonate on your farm and the larvae are likely to leave maternal burrows and not go very far and just uh, drop right off to infect a new host and that's the, the next bag over on your farm. We've been bit proactive about trying to ha have people keep blister worms as part of their best management plan. So the, the gentleman I referred to actually worked with Dana Morris to help engineer or help initially test the cold storage technique for getting rid of blister worm. So he was a proponent of it and I believe at one point even bought himself a refrigerated tractor trailer that could be parked near the farm to be able to treat his oysters that way. I mean as an aside, in the early days of oyster culture in Maine in order to avoid damage to the oysters and oyster cages in the intertidal and near subtidal region, early growers in Maine would actually bring their oysters 
onto land and bury them below the frost line because it keeps them would keep them cold they'd be in a state of low metabolic activity and you could bear essentially bury them on land and they would survive the winter and so that was kind of the well if that works for just overwintering period could we use the, the question that Dana and this grower came up with was could we use that same sort of approach in a different way to try and combat blister worm we know the oysters will survive can we take care of the worm at the same time? It's clear there are many directions for future research in Maine, especially given the recent discovery of Polydora onagoensis alongside other already known species. It's likely researchers like Paul will expand efforts to understand how these worms operate outside the immediate sphere of oyster farming, assessing their presence in natural settings and risks as aquaculture moves into new areas. Well, so future directions for us are to continue, we will continue some of our research looking at the timing of reproduction in the blister worm, blister worms themselves. It's complicated by the fact that there's not just a single species of blister worm in, in Maine. Most farmers are typically impacted by a species called Polydor websteri, which creates some of the most unsightly blisters of, of the group. Um, but there are other species, and while their blisters might look more like a little pimple more than a big blister, um, they can be quite numerous and they can create fragile shells in the host. Um, and some of these are species such as Polydor onagoensis that we didn't even know existed in Maine until some of the work that my students did where we found some unique morphologies and we did some molecular genotyping of, of the species and found that they're closely related to other worms that you find in Japan and, and in uh, France and other parts of Europe. And so while we think we're beginning to get a handle on the reproductive cycle of Polydora websteri in the state, these other species that we've been finding, we have a lot less knowledge of. We know what it might be in parts of Japan where Polydora onagoensis was first described, but we don't have a good handle on when those worms are reproducing yes, in our state. Practices might change depending on yep. species. We're also doing a little bit of work um, in sampling some down east, in down east Maine, uh, all the way out to Cobscook in the far Cobscook Bay in the far east, uh, and then along the coast coming back toward Mount Desert Island. And we've been there's not a lot of oyster culture in that part of the state, but there are lots of places where you find shellfish, wild populations of shellfish. You find plenty of red encrusting coral and algae that probably harbor um, different species of blister worms. And so we want to get an idea of what an area that is not impacted by heavy oyster culture, what do the natural populations of blister worms look like out in regions like that, and then look for what do the natural populations look like in areas where there's heavy oyster culture or heavy shellfish culture. To get an idea of what the shellfish culture impact on wild populations is, 
um, but also to understand as we try to expand shellfish culture more to the Down East region, what might these natural populations of blister worms hold in store for those new operations and how will we have to be uh, aware of that as, as scallop culture and oyster culture moves down east. I just hope that in the next couple of years before maybe I make a decision to retire that we solve a few of these problems so that blister worms do not continue to be uh, the problem that they have been in the past. This has been a very interesting addition to my career and it's allowed me to work with both graduate and undergraduate students on some very interesting projects, helping them to gain skills in DNA technologies, microscopy, ecology, and so while it was not what I initially came to Maine to do, uh, I think it's been a very fruitful part of my career here.